I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. You have been afflicted with the disease of addiction. You are genetically doomed. That sounds a little ridiculous, don't you think? This is the topic that we got into today with Mr. Stanton Peel, addiction expert extraordinaire, writer of freaking 12 books on the topic. Uh, he's been doing this for something like 30 odd years and uh, he's an authority in the field of what the heck it means to be addicted to something in the first place. Is it a, a disease? Does that make any sense? What? The, how do we define this? How do we start to understand this topic so that we can take power over said substances or actions or thought processes that we may feel like we have no control over? That is what we got into today. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is the Align Podcast. And uh, Stanton Peel is the guest of the day. Um, actionable tips on how to get control of yourself if you got some kind of substances or some kind of something that you're, you can't wiggle. That's what we got into. And uh, just really dissecting the subject of addiction. What the heck is it? How can we gain our power back? All of the things that you need to do to emerge from an addiction have to do with enhancing your life, your feelings about yourself, your way of looking at the world. Uh, otherwise, you might get over one addiction, but then you'll be susceptible to just another addiction that comes down the road. We're inculcating people in the guise of science, supposedly, with the chronic brain disease, with a weight of albatross around people's necks that make them less likely to outgrow or resist addiction. And we're congratulating ourselves while we do that. You've got to be mindful of your own power. You've got to see yourself as having the capability of escaping this identity. Addiction is not a lifetime identity. Addiction is something you're saddled with for a certain time in a certain place. And not thinking of yourself as an addict, in your case, makes it easier to overcome the addiction. So I hope you guys enjoy. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com, on that beautiful website that is just being re remade over. So if you guys have been on there, recently uh check it out again i think it's quite beautiful i got a crack team working on it thank you all you guys are wonderful i appreciate everything you're doing and maybe i don't know if you actually i don't know if my crack team listened to the podcast or not but if you are listening crack team thank you and uh yeah on there you'll find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement you will find the self-care kit foam roller with some balls and some bands and some door anchor thing and to adjust the different band different size heights super super helpful little gizmo throw it underneath the car seat throw it underneath the living room organize all those self-care tools into one little kit package 
and work on that body. Keep them tissues moving fantastically. Oh, oh, oh. Also, we have courses on there in, in the same vein, teaching you how to move well, teaching you how to uh, keep them tissues hydrated, slippery, sliding layers like a birthday party on a hot summer day, sliding down a beautiful green grassy hill in the mud, feeling good, feeling great. Um, what else, what else, what else? Check out the iTunes slash Stitcher review situation. Leave a comment, re- leave a review. It makes me feel happy and it helps spread the word. I personally feel like the messages that are projected on this podcast machine, um, called the Align Podcast, uh, I think they're really important. I greatly appreciate the people that are on here, and I genuinely believe that if these messages are projected to a high percentage of the world, I think that Earth will be a better place, and uh, we are dependent on you to leave some sexy, sexy little comments on there. Um, be sure to utilize the Amazon portal on the right sidebar in the blog, in the podcast. Uh, if you're going to buy anything, if you're going to go out and buy yourself a new MacBook computer, I'll get a small percentage of that, and that will fund this mother-freaking podcast because it costs money to do this thing, I'll tell you what. And I want to keep doing this the rest of my life. So uh, let's, uh, let's, let's monetize this little mother trucker. I don't know if there's anything else. Probably is, but I genuinely forget these things. Oh, 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 the other thing. Going to Europe here in a month and a half, October 31st. I'll be out there. Go check out Health Unplugged. I'll be there speaking and offering some workshops. I'll also be offering workshops at various places throughout Europe. Um, I'm going to post all that stuff on the website. Then I'm heading to Africa and um, hopefully be riding a donkey or a zebra or an elephant um, and just exploring, hanging out with tribesmen, probably sampling some plant medicines of sorts and just cruising. If y'all have some suggestions for me, I am very intrigued to hear your opinions of where this little white boy here from Bend, Oregon is supposed to go and check out. I'll be there for six months. So hit me up. And, uh, yeah, if you're around, say hi. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all very, very much. And uh, here we go. Back to the show with Mr. Stanton Peel. Addiction extraordinaire. (laughs) Align Podcast. Alrighty. So, are you ready to go? Yes. Fantastic. Stanton Peel, thank you for chatting with me once again. Um, I feel like we're really starting to form this bond with all these interviews that we're doing with each other. Um, we have a long-term relationship. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's very beautiful. Um, so I just finished up your book, Recover. You have, do you have like a dozen books on addiction? Is that an accurate number? And have you yes. been doing addiction work? Is it 30 years or 40 years? or what's, what's... Well, uh, Love and Addiction was my first book with Archie Brodsky. I wrote that in 1975. So that makes us 40 years exactly, doesn't it? That's, uh, yeah. So that's, that's amazing, firstly. Um, I don't know if I should congratulate you or how you, it's, it's, congratulations if that's, <laughs> if that's the right thing to say. Well, uh, I think uh, one of my accomplishments is surviving in the field this long. Right. Especially with the perspective that, on the one hand, is outside the mainstream, but on the other hand has really previewed all of the major directions we're going in. For example, Love and Addiction said that addiction's not 
caused by drugs. It's not limited to drugs. Uh, at the time, in 1975, addiction just meant... I'm going to give you a quiz question to keep you on your feet now. Hit me. What did addiction mean in 1975? If you said addiction, everybody thought the same thing. What did it mean? It meant you had a physical dependence. Refer to one thing only. What did, what did everybody immediately think after you said addiction? Chemical dependence. Heroin. Oh, okay. Uh, at the time, it was really two decades before people even thought that smoking was addictive. Right. Certainly marijuana or cocaine weren't considered to be addictive. Um, and certainly, it was beyond the pale to think that you could become addicted to something that you didn't put into your body. Right. And we uh, obliviated all of those preconceptions in love and addiction in a way that people just had a hard time comprehending. Right. And now, in the, in the year 2013, uh, the American Psychiatric Association released its new Bible, DSM-5, right. and for the first time... Uh, it identified something as being addictive that wasn't a substance, and in this case, it was gambling. So uh, one of the preview jokes I usually like to make is I'm awaiting my call from Stockholm to receive the Nobel Prize any day now. <laughs> right. Well, so one of the things, the reason that I'm so intrigued by your work is I think that you bring more wisdom to this topic of addiction, you know, as opposed to taking what everyone says, if you know, it's like, if enough people in the room are saying the same thing, of course, that thing has to become a fact, even if it's complete bull, you know, it's like, well, this is this is what the smart guy in the room had said. So I'm going to agree with him, then I'm going to repeat it. And then we perpetuate that. And then it doesn't matter what the heck the information was, we're all saying the same thing. But what you have have done is kind of come to, you know, approach addiction you know, and the, the whole disease model of addiction and kind of shaken that a little bit, you know, so I'd like to just talk firstly, like what, what the heck is a disease in the first place? Like, cause I think a lot of this stuff comes down to semantics of like, I say it's a disease. I don't, it's like, well, what do you mean by disease? You know? And then as well, like I, from my perspective on that, when you, once you become, you know, diagnosed with a disease, you're completely disempowered. You know, and so, so how does, what is a disease and how does that relate to addiction? Disease carries with it an awful lot of implications. Uh, it began with AA and it's continued now with kind of the modern chronic brain disease idea. It means that you're helpless. I mean, when you get cancer, uh, there's not a lot you're going to personally do about it other than seek some outside agency to try and cure you. So moving addiction into that realm is the strangest activity. And I say that because, as I say in Recover, which I wrote, by the way, with a woman who lives in, nearby you in Portland, Oregon, Ilsa Thompson, oh, cool. uh, the most important agency for you to get over an addiction is yourself. Uh, and to disabuse yourself of the concept that you're powerless. We, we devote a lot of time for people to image themselves in a completely different way. Uh, why is it that we want people to eliminate the most important ingredient in recovery, their self-efficacy? So let me give you an example of an exercise that I do when I speak to a large group, often including 
counselors, recovering counselors, I say, what's the hardest substance addiction to quit? And everybody always shouts out smoking, and these are kind of experts in addiction in the sense that many of them have sampled a range right. of alcohol and drug addictions. And I say, well, that's just remarkable, really remarkable. I say, by the way, is anybody in this room cleared up a smoking addiction in their own lives? And then masses of people raise their hands. Right. Did you ever smoke? I did, actually, oddly enough. It's saying that is such an interest. Like, I'm like, no, really? I'm like, no, actually, I remember I did do that. <laughs> and then I say, well, of all the people here who quit smoking, and it might be 60% of the audience in a heavy-duty substance counselor crowd, how many of you joined a support group or used the medical technology? You know, now they have psychiatric drugs for it, but most often it would be nicotine replacement, gum, or patch. And I've been in rooms of 600 people where nobody raised their hand, certainly never more than a handful of people raised their hand to say that they relied on an agency, a medical technique, a support group to overcome addiction. And I say, that's phenomenal. That's really phenomenal. What does that tell us all? Right. You've just told me the toughest smoking, the toughest drug addiction to quit a majority of people in this room have done, and none of you relied on any external agency to do it. Let's just go to the bottom of what you just explained to me. And it's so ironic that we're selling an idea that every, virtually every human being, if not in their own life, in terms of people they know, disproves. Right. Uh, and, you know, that one of the men who developed the chronic brain disease model uh, said it's not true that millions of people have quit addictions on their own. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 40 million Americans quit smoking and 90% of them in the old days uh, were able to do it on their own. When I say in the old days, on television we're constantly marketing the need for pharmaceuticals. There used to be ads that said, would you try and operate on yourself? And then they say, why would you try to quit smoking on your own? Right. That gets to the heart of the disease thing, doesn't it? Yeah, Once you put addiction in the disease category and start throwing things into that category, you're telling people, forget your ability to monitor and direct your own lives. You need to turn yourselves over to us. And there's no more powerful industry, by the way, than the pharmaceutical industry for getting into our heads. And what does it mean now, in part due to myself, that we're expanding the basket of things that we throw addictive diseases into, starting with gambling, and it'll be video games, and of course sex will end up in there, shopping. The, as I pointed out in Love and Addiction, and we point out in Recover, Addiction is a really not unusual experience for human beings. Sure. All of us understand what addiction is about. All of us can look into our lives and find some part of the addiction spectrum there, uh, whether it be some god-awful love relationship we had, whether it was some kind of use of money where we just got desperate and kept 
doing more of something that we knew was destructive to us, which gave us some sense of temporary relief, but which resulted in digging ourselves into a deeper hole. Right. And just as all of us understand something about addiction, one way or another, all of us understand something about, quite a bit about, recovery. All of us understand how we are capable of emerging from that experience, how most of us have emerged from addictive experiences. Right. Well, that gets into um, what I was talking to with, uh, oh, what's his, what's his name? Joel Salton from Polyface Farms. He's like, you know, famous farmer, you know, like, like Hollywood farmer almost now, but amazing, amazing guy. And one of the things that we chatted about was the germ theory versus the terrain theory, you know, and the germ theory being essentially, you know, germs are bad and they're out to get you, you know, and then the terrain theory is germs are great. You know, our bodies are able to utilize these germs and actually develop antibodies and become, you know, more robust because of the germs that we live with. What matters is what's happening in the terrain being you in the first place. Is your body susceptible to these diseases or these bacteria or viruses or funguses, you know, or is it able to actually work symbiotically with it, you know? And so then that gets into, okay, well, what's the terrain from? The terrain's from, you know, how we react to our environment, you know? And so that's my thought with, with, uh, addiction. It's like addiction, I believe is a symptom you know, just like every attribute, you know, this conversation, my, my personality traits, you know, my physical, you know, my looks, all that, I think it's a symptom of my environment, you know, but what we do is we confuse and you say this, you know, you, these personality traits, they are me, these addictions, they are me, they come from the inside. I mean, you know, really, I think that it is this stimulus from the outside and, you know, our, our interpretation of that information. So that being said, you know, it's a lot easier to just never start smoking cigarettes in the first place. You know, like how, what is the, the, the impetus from the environment that develops an addictive personality? Well, uh, that, your comments set me off in two different directions. By the way, you look marvelously healthy, buddy. So, thank you uh, very much. Appreciate that. Thank you. Well, lots of water. Uh, I agree totally. It's the terrain that you need to water. How do you overcome an addiction? Do you spend all of your time smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee in a church basement? Or do you really work on the strength of your life? Do you really try and develop interest? Do you try and develop relationships? Do you try and develop a better feeling for yourself? Do you get engaged in more positive activities? I developed something called the Life Process Program. It's present in my books. I have a number of self-help books, one of which is called The Truth About Addiction Recovery. And we developed the Life Process Program, and we used it as a, in a rehab, and it's now online. And what it says is that all of the things that you need to do to emerge from an addiction have to do with enhancing your life, your feelings about yourself, your way of looking at the world. Uh, otherwise, you might get over one addiction, but then you'll be susceptible to just another addiction that comes down the road. On the other hand, I, there's something else that your speech reminded me of. I mean, I don't want to glorify addiction. Um, it can be horrible. People die from it. Sure. But I don't, in recover, we focus on the idea that people get put into an addiction cubicle where they say something like, well, I'm an alcoholic. 
Sure. And that becomes their whole image of themselves. And it has a lot of consequences when you describe yourself in that negative way. We don't do that. We, we don't do that with anything. We don't say you're retarded to a person. We say you're a person with certain incapacities. Right. We're all people with certain kinds of weaknesses. But there's even, I like to emphasize to people, a positive side to that. When you have had addictive experiences or any kind of negative experiences, those enrich your whole life. They don't ruin your life. They give you a sympathy for other people. They give you a sympathy for yourself. They hopefully give you some kind of humility. Um, they give you a feeling of your own vitality because you've experienced things and you've survived. So, for example, one of my techniques for dealing with people with addictions is to say to them, if they come in with one addiction, like I started with you, I said, oh, have you ever smoked? Have you quit? And more often than not, I can get from people an example of some addiction they've overcome in their own life. And so I can say to them, well, you know, I'm going to help you with your addiction, but I want to point out that you're already an expert in recovery. You have already overcome an addiction in your own life. Nobody knows better than you what that took and what your resources are. Let's just take a moment and praise you and think about the strengths that enabled you to do that and the wisdom that you developed from having that experience. It's just remarkable how often that comes up. I'll, I talked to a woman who has been a heroin addict for 20 years and it surprises me sometimes even. I say, so you've never quit heroin? And she says, well, I did for two and a half years. And I go, well, wait one second now. So we know you can quit heroin. And the way we know that is I didn't make it up or read it in a book. You've done that in your life. Right. Let's focus on that experience, that moment, those resources that enabled you to do it. And let's bring that now into the here and now, the present. Which is called mindfulness in in Buddhism, yeah, and mindfulness in psychology as well. Well, so so from my you know optimistic unicorn snow globe perspective on reality, you know I feel as though you know we develop our own power dependent upon like you're saying these titles that we give ourselves. You know, so I have a friend of mine. He's he's brilliant with plants. You know, he's like, if you give him a plant, it doesn't matter how sick it is, whatever it may be, you put it into his house for just a short amount of time, boosh, it like blooms up and it's beautiful, you know, and, it's, and a big part of that, I believe, is that he has taken on that title of, I got a green thumb, you know, and so, and so from that point forward, he reads all the books about how to develop his green thumb, he gets more, some, more immersed in it, you know, and, and just by being around him, you can almost feel this like, you know, green frub shrubbery god, you know, it's, and it's because he has fully embodied that title. We do the same thing. We fully embody these titles of smoking cigarettes, of drinking alcohol, of being addicted to jerking off or whatever it is that you do. You know, it's like we get, what, I think the really important thing to do is recognize, is like you asked me, did I used to smoke cigarettes? I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Yes, son of a gun, I did. You know, and now that is so far away from my perspective of myself. It doesn't even make sense. You know, and that's the big thing is that the day that you accept, not that 
I'm a recovering smoker. Not that, oh, I haven't had a pack for you know 45 days. That means you still have the monkey on your back. You're still carrying that. As soon as you accept, you know, it's like change your language. You know, I, I it's like not even that I'm I'm not a smoker, but it's like, you know, it's just like you know, smoking doesn't even come into your mind. You know, so how do we how do we get into that changing our titles and our that you know our perception of ourselves? Because I'm sure it's easier said than done. Well, there's you make me think in two directions again. It, you're a perfect example of somebody who didn't uh, weigh themselves down with the addict label, and if you would have you wouldn't have been able to emerge as readily as you did. One of the things that we do in Recover, my book with Ilsa, is to say you've got to be mindful of your own power. You've got to see yourself as having the capability of escaping this identity. Addiction is not a lifetime identity. Addiction is something you're saddled with for a certain time and a certain place. And not thinking of yourself as an addict, in your case, makes it easier to overcome the addiction. Let's switch back to thinking about an AA group. You have to get up and say, I'm an alcoholic. Right. Isn't that a funny thing to do to a person? Which flips back into your other area. If you listen to the degree of negativity in any kind of a treatment program, any kind of a rehab, it's overwhelming. They have groups where, tough love groups, where they bombard you with all the negative things you've done in your life. And really, you're supposed to make lists of those things in AA. How's that meant to be helpful? I mean, most people, certainly by the time they get to rehab or AA, are aware that they've got some negatives in their bank account. Right. But as you, you, you almost described the perfect kind of therapy. Why focus on that? How does that help a person? Suppose you have a child who's a very poor athlete, but he reads well, or vice versa. You don't sit there and focus on what they do poorly. Right. You focus on what they're good at for yeah. two reasons, or three, I should say. One, their self-esteem. People are going to do better when they feel good about themselves. Two, because you want to reinforce what it is they do well. And probably in life, it makes more sense to just go in the direction that you're naturally inclined towards. If you're smart or you're athletic, those are good things to pursue. But third, what you and I sense that you were trying to do that with your green thumb person, making a person aware and focused and mindful of their greatest abilities, what they do best, how they approach that. They're very, they're very open about it, that your friend knows about plants, he reads about them, he experiments. Right. He looks like, you know, somebody at MIT or Einstein when you put him in the plant world. Right. And then in some other area, maybe he flounders. Let's say that person's kind of an addiction client. And then I say, you know, you have the capability to be really confident, to really float above life, to really explore life, to really feel good about it. And you can do that in some areas of your life, but not in other areas of your life. Let's try and generalize the feelings from those strong areas of your life to the areas where you're not doing so well. You know that you're capable of it. You're that same human being. And that focus on the positive, if you someday read the 12 steps, you'll see, you know, they spend an awful lot of time dwelling on your negatives there, you know? Sure. Fine. 
But is that really how you want to encourage a person to approach life? Uh, we don't think so, and, and we try a whole different approach in recovery. Yeah, so that's, that gets me to, so the reason that a lot of the language that you speak, I happen to, it happens to be congruent with the language that I speak, is I do the same stuff with clients here in my office. You know, and so when people come in, it is so easy to disempower someone. They're already coming in with their tail between their legs. You know, it's like I have this thing in my body. I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's been six months. I still have this knee pain. I don't know what's going on. It's very, very easy for me or any, you know, a Cairo or a PT or whatever to take the, the power and say, oh, man, this is broken. This is busted up. This is torqued. This is turned. You screwed up. It's so easy to do that. At the same same time, that's only half the equation. You know, the fact that they're walking in the room, the fact that they, you know, they, they have, you know, a good body fat percentage, the fact that they have a good, you know, perspective on the world. Like there's so many positive things happening in that person's life. It's very, very easy to be shrouded completely by that one little knee pain. You know, by that one little cigarette addiction, by that one little whatever, you know, and all of a sudden it consumes you and you feed it power and then it really legitimately has power. The question is, where did the power come from? Did you give it the power or was it the initial, did it, was it as strong as it was before you got there? You know, and it's, it's very, very interesting. But I, I have a question though. It's a, it's a remarkable thing how if you were to sit in on a lot of addiction therapy sessions or group sessions or AA groups, how abusive they are. How often people are accused of things and told negative things about themselves. And you put it so well, you're very graphic about it. They come in with their tails between their legs. It's sort of like abusing them to really take advantage of that kind of weakness. Right. And, you know, here's the basic question that I could ask anybody. Do you feel that people are better able to change when they're feeling better about themselves or when they're feeling worse about themselves? Yeah, no-brainer. Do you feel that when you're sitting in an AA group, you're really getting positive messages about you that empower you? Right. Um, do you feel when you're told that you have a chronic brain disease that you're in a good position? That's And I say... By the way, if you ever deal with a child and they have some kind of problem, like stuttering, do you focus on that? Do you emphasize that? Do you right. describe how it's causing them problems? Oh, everybody thinks you're stupid or, you know, you can't do well in school. Why not think of that model with a child and generalize it to every other area where you're trying to help a human being? Right. You know, I... I write blogs for The Fix, they do a national survey of alcohol abuse and in the years, in the decade between 2001-2002 and 2012-2013, they found a 50% increase from 8.5% to 14% in current year substance alcohol use disorders. A 50% jump in over a decade, and this is a massive study of about 40,000 Americans, in the percentage of Americans who have an alcohol problem. Why is that? Yeah. How is it growing so rapidly? Right. And, you know, we, everybody hears about alcoholism. Everybody knows about AA. 
in schools nowadays, you're taught the chronic brain disease model. We're inculcating people in the guise of science, supposedly, with the chronic brain disease, with a weight of albatross around people's necks that make them less likely to outgrow or resist addiction. And we're congratulating ourselves while we do that. We're saying, oh, isn't it great that we've got this whole new way of approaching it? Oh, it's not a new way, of course. It's as old as America. And, and yet we see the negative results all around us as we're congratulating ourselves. We're doing victory laps, dancing on the backs of people who are developing these problems. Right. Oh, so to play devil's advocate with this, then, you know, so what about what is the difference between being addicted to something like marijuana or sex or gambling, you know, and being addicted to something like, you know, that's shown to actually develop physiological changes in your brain, you know, cocaine and heroin and sugar, you know, like, is there some type of definable difference there? Or are we feeding that more energy than is necessary? Like what, what happens with that? Well, the idea that there's some physical thing called addiction is the monster that we've had a fight that I wrote, Love and Addiction to Fight, in 75, and The Meaning of Addiction, 1985. Do you know, in 1960, here's a gig I do, in 1964 something happened, and it was called the Surgeon General's Report, and it came out and said smoking caused cancer, and over the next 20 years, about half of Americans who smoke quit smoking. And I asked people, what do you think the 64 Gen Surgeon General's report said about smoking addiction? And everybody says, well, they said it was addictive. And I said, they didn't. They said it wasn't addictive. Hmm. Now, why did they say it wasn't addictive? Because our That's idea of addiction at the time didn't incorporate smoking. We thought, well, heroin, you need to shoot it up. Look at the withdrawal you go through. And only in the next 20 years do people say, you know, that same kind of process is comparable for smoking. And there's a comparable kind of a process, really, when you think about it with cocaine, which was always thought not to be, a, there's a term I never use, physically addictive. And what about a person who smokes marijuana all the time? And now, as I described, in the year 2013, we decided, the American Psychiatry decided, Gambling was addictive. And if you've seen somebody completely enmeshed in a video game, you have to say, well, that's addictive. Right. Can we say all of these things are physically addictive? Right. Are they all physically addictive? In the Do video games really operate in your brain in the same way that heroin does? And the answer is, that doesn't explain anything. Your brain is impacted by virtually every activity that you have. Mm. The question is, how immersed do you get in that experience and what are its negative consequences? To flipping that on the other side, you know, people go to hospitals and they get pretty good narcotics in those hospitals. If you're a street heroin addict, when they call it junk, you're getting a lot of junk. Right. Sometimes when people show up for treatment, they don't even really have any heroin in their, or narcotic in their system. Right. And yet in the hospital, people take powerful courses of narcotics, they even go home with them. And yet they don't become addicted to them. Why is that? It's because they're not sitting there thinking, well, this is overpowering me. I'm taking an addictive substance. The idea that there's something that makes you addicted has retarded our ability to deal with addiction. As I said, in 1975, when 
We wrote Archie Brodsky and I wrote Love and Addiction. If you said addiction, everybody said heroin. And they all thought there's some magic key in heroin that makes you addicted. Here's the way it's better to think about it instead. Whatever substance or drug or involvement you become immersed in creates some kind of an experience for you, some kind of miasma, some kind of retreat for your mind and your body, some place that you can go to that protects you from what you feel is negative and harmful to you in life, which is fine. You can do that by meditation. But when you turn to that experience to the exclusion of dealing with life, when you become more and more engaged and meshed in that experience in a way that's destructive to you, think about a love relationship. What if you say, I really love this person. Let's take a woman. I'm going to stop talking to my parents. I'm going to stop talking to my sisters. I'm going to cut off all of my friends. I'm going to quit school. You know why? Because I love being in this relationship so much. I love being near the person so much. Is that a physiological addiction? Right. It's a feeling that you have, an immersion, a kind of an experience that you get that you become wedded to in such a destructive, self-immolating way that it burns the rest of your life. Right. It's impossible to make a column of list of things and say, these things are addictive, and then another column and say, these things aren't addictive. Any experience that you can enmesh your life in has the capability of being addictive. Sure. Yeah, and that's, I think that it's really interesting. Again, this all relates exactly back to general health of the body, you know, and, and I mean, this is metaphoric for, for most things, I think, you know, but when you look, you know, say you get in a car accident and you get, you know, knocked up, you're in the hospital, you're not really in the best place. You know, your life isn't, you're not, you know, on the top of the world at that point. Then they hit you with drugs, you know, and then you come out and now you move back into your mom's house, you know, and you can't move and your mom's like cleaning up your poo bag or whatever. It's like, and then you eat your drugs, you know, it's like you're putting yourself in a circumstance that you don't have anything to show up for. You know, and so the people that end up getting addicted to these drugs when they come out, you know, I have a lot of friends that, I've, I've, that have gone both ways with this, where it's like, yeah, man, I was hooked on Oxycontin or I was hooked on Vicodin or whatever it was, you know, and it all depends on, do they have something to show up for in their life? Do they have a reason not to use this stuff? You That's know? a really good way. There's no better way to put it. Right. That. That, do you have a reason not to be addicted is the single best thing <laughs> talk to a person about avoiding addiction, thinking right. about a child, or treating a person. Right. Um, what is it that motivates you not to give your life over to that experience, however pleasant it may be at the time? That's a really, uh, your way of thinking about it, it's really helpful. Thank By you. the way, uh, I mean, two things that come out of that, at the same time that we're constantly worried about drugs, we dispense painkillers like fleas. I mean, they're everywhere. Right. And that's, I mean, I'm not going to say that's good or that's bad. I mean, people need painkillers sometimes. Sometimes sure. they have pain. On the one hand, we can say to ourselves, gosh, we seem to be a highly susceptible society to, deal, uh, to pain. We don't seem to deal well with pain. Right. On the other hand, we can say, you know, 
tens of millions of people in America take painkillers, and a relatively small percentage of them. So how addictive can painkillers be exactly? The answer, I mean, the answer is the odds are nearly always in favor of the human being versus the drug. And believe it or not, that happens to be true as well with every drug that we know. It happens to be true with heroin. It happens to be true with cocaine. We're most aware of it with marijuana because everybody knows people, virtually everybody smoke marijuana, so they're able to say, well, I know most people don't end up being addicted to it because, well, the people I know aren't addicted to it. That's actually true with every single drug in our repertoire. And... And one drug, the bad news is we dispense, dispense painkillers like Pez's. I don't know if we have Pez's anymore. It used to be a little candy you used to get. Uh, Which are quite addictive, and, I think. <laughs> on the other hand, they're everywhere, and yet most people don't really become addicted to them. Keep that in mind. Right. Have you, I'm sure you're familiar with, there was um, a study that, I don't remember who, who was doing it exactly, but it was with uh, patients that were undergoing gallbladder surgery. And what they noticed was that the patients that had windows in their rooms that were able to see trees, they demanded less pain medication. They didn't need it so much. Another thing was patients that had more control, felt like they had more control over the situation. They didn't need pain medication so much. You know, so the people that That's feel helpless- in America, we're pain medicine phobic. And it took decades to come up with something. Here's, this is an experiment that's been done a hundred times now, very similar to what you're describing. What if you let patients push a button that gave them a painkiller? Would they all become addicted in the hospital? And our model of addictions is, of course, it's physiological addic right. addictive. You can't help yourself. Right. In fact, when people, and you put it very well, <clears throat> you ought to write a book someday, you know. I'm working, uh, working on it. <laughs> when people feel they have control over their lives, they tend to behave in more self-controlled ways. So here's the irony. In America, we would think if you have self-administered analgesia, you're going to become addicted and use more of it. Every single study shows that people use less of it. Right for at least two reasons. First of all, they tend to only use it when they need it. That's just the way people are. It's not like they're dying to have a painkiller. Right. And second of all, exactly the way you put it, Aaron, the feeling of control over your world is a remarkably powerful thing. Yeah. If you were, let's get back to a child again. What do you want your child most to get from, you know, growing up? Uh, what do you want them to be most a part of their mental apparatus, it's a feeling that they control their lives. You don't want them to meet some kids and they say, hey, let's all take heroin. Let's all go to Mexico. Right. Hey, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if you have a setback in life, you're doomed. We want our kids, I happen to have three kids, you know, two in their mid-30s and one in their mid-20s, who feel that they can deal with what life has to throw at them a sense that they're, the word that people use is self-efficacious. Right. That's an awfully strong anti-addictive agent. And even if, as sometimes happens, they go off in a bad, bad direction, 
they'll see that they have, they'll believe that they have the capability of overcoming that and recovering. Right. That's what people need to have. That's what we want to give children. That's what we need to convince human beings that it's a part of their mental apparatus. Right. And that gets into, which I've talked about this in the podcast before, so I don't want to get into it too deeply, um, but the whole Rat Park experiment that was done, I believe it was in Vancouver, you know, where they took, it's like the standard model. It's like, you give a rat the choice between cocaine and water or food or whatever, cocaine every time. It's like, well, look at the rat's environment, man, you know? And then if they're sitting in this blank cage with these giants walking around them, they could pluck them out and kill them like at any time. That's stressful, you know, and so to get high, it's like, hell yeah, I'll get high. Like, if I'm in prison, I'll Let get me, high. Let uh, me be a little more concrete. Um, how I became an addiction expert, I went to the University of Michigan, where they have among the most elaborate animal laboratories for research in the world. And somehow I convinced them when I was a graduate student to go with my co-author, Archie Brodsky, to look at the monkeys in the cages. How do you get a monkey to take heroin? It turns out the answer is you implant a catheter in their spine and then they press a button to get more heroin. To do that, they have to be immobilized. There's a certain limit to how much they can move. You can't have them swinging from trees and they're in a small cage. The minute you see that, you say to yourself, wait a second. This is heroin addiction? Right. Because a monkey will take heroin, that proves heroin's addictive. I mean, can they have monkeys swinging in trees and then showing up at the local dealer and getting heroin? They can't do that experiment. But human beings can do that experiment. Right. And if you think about it, what's the parallel between being a heroin addict and not being a heroin addict? It's like believing that you have a free range in your life and what and you said this before that you have better things to do right. let's go back to rat park i wrote love and addiction in 1975 and then i met bruce alexander and did the rat park experiments nice. we just had a similar way of thinking and he said well what if you put rats in a big rat park with a lot of fun rat things in it ferris wheel and other rats of the other sex, if you're getting my drift, and then even after you habituate them to a morphine solution where they suck in a lot of morphine, once you put them in Rat Park, they stop taking the morphine. Right. Uh, why is that? Because they'd rather run around in those stupid little Ferris wheels, run all around that park, and I don't know if this is a, you know, if you're X-rated here or not, Go for it. and have sex with the other rats, and it's when you're narcotized, you can't compete for sexual favors. Sure. And so the best cure for addiction for animals is giving them a lot of options, including play, socialization, social ability, and sex. That's the, that turns out to be the Rat Park solution for the cure for addiction. There was another thing that I saw that I thought was really interesting, and um, I don't, I've, I know I talked with you about it before, but we didn't get, we haven't recorded it. But there was the uh, monkeys, and I think it was like Kit Island in the Caribbean, where they 
become alcoholics. It's amazing. You got to check it out on YouTube if you haven't seen it. You know, and these these little monkeys, these little bastards, they come up and steal people's drinks and they get wasted drunk. And it's 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 really, I mean, it's it's incredibly sad and also kind of hilarious at the same time. You know, but do you have any any thoughts on on that where it's like we're seeing this happen with animals at Kid Island. Is that still a product of them being introduced to this human One environment? One of the things that Bruce Alexander talks about is how addiction is a function of the modern capitalist society. When you think about it, how are you going to be addicted or alcoholic if you're kind of living in a small village and you have to go out and farm every day and you're kind of living close to the edge? You can't hang around a bar all day drinking. Life necessity prevents the development of addiction. Right. And as we get farther and farther from that kind of reality, as we get farther and farther from our ability and our need to preserve ourselves and to live in the world, we become more available to addictions. Right. There's a famous anthropologist named Dwight Heath who published a study in 1955 about the Camba Indians in Colombia. And he went there and he hung out with them. And a couple of weekends a month, everybody in the village, the kids were servers, sat around in a big circle and drank a really potent alcohol brew until they fell over. And then they would get up and drink more for, throughout the weekend. And then what happened on Monday, they went back to work. They went back to farming. And he said he never knew of a single case of somebody becoming dependent on alcohol, of seeking to drink other than on those weekend excursions. And when you think about it, they couldn't. Right. You can't be an alcoholic and an Indian in a rural agrarian society. It can't be done. Right. And that monkey experiment is a way of saying, well, let's detach monkeys from their normal environments, uh, enable them to live without their normal functionability, and then let's give them an addictive substance for free and sweeten the taste of it, by the way, while we're at it, right. and see what happens. And that's almost an example of how we encourage addiction in our own society. Hmm. Interesting. So, and what about, is there a place for drug use? You know, so it's like, say a person with anxiety, say a person with depression, whatever it may be, you know, say, you know, I, I'm completely on board that the environment introduced, you know, that, that like drop down to rock bottom of whatever neurotransmitter or whatever it may be. I don't, I'm not really sure actually whether that, I mean, genetically there's probably a chance that that can happen where their drugs may be really helpful, you know, and even if it was a genetic thing or if it was a product of the environment, they're still dropped down rock bottom on this dopamine or serotonin or whatever it may be. Is there a room to actually, you know, medicinally use drugs as a crutch or as a supplement to get you back into the flow of a healthy life? Or do you think that, like, what are your thoughts on that? You know, two things seem to be, I'm, I talked at the beginning of this uh, before we began the, the interview. What's the big picture of where we're going in America? In America, we're convincing people that you can't control drug use and you become addicted to many drugs like marijuana. We're doing that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we're legalizing marijuana and we're giving out painkillers and all kinds of powerful psychoactive agents, antipsychotic drugs, a lithium for bipolar 
antidepressants, certainly. Perhaps that was what you were referring to. Yeah. Where are we headed? We're simultaneously convincing people that drugs are overwhelmingly addictive, and we're giving people more and more drugs. By the way, here's my idea for my next book, and I don't know whether I'm going to be able to convince a major publisher to use it. <laughs> How to use drugs, your manual for the 21st century, because we're not, awesome. we're not going in a direction of using less drugs. Everybody reads about, you know, uh, they cut down Silk Road. You know, you can get a lot of drugs on the internet. Right. You can get them from China. You can get it. If our concept is here's our plan, let's eliminate people's access to drugs. Not only can people get drugs anywhere, we're giving people all kinds of drugs. You can't go to a medical appointment and not get a drug. You can, every psychiatrist in America will give you any kind of drug you want. Somehow we have to understand how to use drugs. And in answer to your question is, they can be a tool in your life as needed without your feeling that you're dependent on them and without your belief that they're making you whole. Let me give you an example. The drug that's currently most used to treat both alcoholism and narcotic addiction is called naltrexone. And naltrexone occupies the opiate receptors so that people are less inclined to be able to get pleasure or what effects out of narcotics and alcohol. The people, of, the man who developed is one of the main proponents of naltrexone is a man named Charles O'Brien, who's very prominent in American psychiatry. So they did a big study where they gave people naltrexone and they also gave them placebo, but they didn't tell the therapist which was the placebo and which was the naltrexone. And they found a tremendous drop in people's, and these were alcoholics. Right. They found a tremendous drop in how frequently people drank, how much they binge drank, and how much they drank at any one time. And guess what? They found that with the naltrexone, and they found it with the placebo. Sure. Now, where do you go with that? You know, you can't open a placebo clinic. <clears throat> you can't say, here's my concept. We're going to put a big neon sign out front, naltrexone, but we're not actually going to use naltrexone. We're going to give everybody placebo, powdered sugar, or, you know, quinine, and flour, but we're not going to tell the therapists or the clients that that's what we're doing. They, you know, they put you in jail if you do that, you see, right. you know, it's like selling penicillin, but, you know, not giving them penicillin. Right. And here's the way I try and merge that. I, if I was in a naltrexone clinic, I would say, this is a drug that lessens your urge for alcohol, but you have that ability within yourself. Perhaps you need a little bit of a boost up, you know, getting through a few weeks or months where you're feeling you need, I don't know, I've never drunk moderately or I've never drunk only a couple of days a week. I don't know that I can do that. We're going to give you this. It's like the feather that allowed Dumbo to fly. This does that. Right. However, this does nothing that you can't do on your own. Sure. How do we know that? Well, because it's only a matter of how you respond to the alcohol on the one hand, and we've actually done research that shows that if you didn't know you were receiving this and you thought you were receiving it and your therapist thought you were receiving it, 
you'd act in the same way. You're more power. The, the message is you're more powerful than you think. Right. You know, we're in a world that's quite disempowering. A lot of people experience that they don't have much control over life. And we can't blame them for that because they're kind of right in a lot of ways, you know. I mean, you know, you can watch the 1% that control America. But you can't let that seep into your soul. Right. can't feel that you don't have a relationship to yourself, to life, to other people, to the earth. That's something we emphasize in, in Recover, that kind of a Buddhist feeling of belonging. Right. You have to have that feeling. Right. Uh, you have to feel that nobody can deprive you of that. You have to meditate on that because otherwise you're going to be susceptible to a lot of bad things. It's interesting that it seems like the Western medicine model is afraid to give power to human culture, you know, humanity. It's very interesting how that is. You get it. There's so many studies with this. You know, they say, you know, I thought, I thought the placebo effect was like 50%, but I was talking to Rob Wolf a couple of days ago and he's, he said it was like 70%. You know, I was, I was like, okay, well, regardless, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's at least 50, 50 that this stuff's working. So I, I have a feeling that if we did just switch out all of those medications, you know, for anxiety and stress or depression or whatever it is, I think the only impact would be people's livers would be healthier. It's just a guess, you know. I can't say for sure what you know whether well, that's they've done accurate it, at all. I mean, there are people who are in the in the business of looking at um, antidepressants. There's something called active antidepressants. When you give people a placebo that's psychoactive, so they know something's happening. Right. It's remarkable how far down the actual effect of the drug gets to be. You know, it's tending towards almost zero. It goes from 30% you described when there's an active placebo to 10% and less. And it's, it seems that just knowing something's happening to your body gives people something to hang on to. Right. And we've got to be able to believe that because otherwise we're going to become disempowered from our own well-being. And it's, it's not a very pretty picture. Well, By the way, uh, how did you quit smoking? Uh, yeah. Um, the reason I quit, I was living in Hawaii and uh, I started running, you know, and it essentially like, it's like for whatever reason, you know, I was surfing a lot and I want to be able to hold my breath underwater. So there's a reason, you know, I started running on the beach. And I was like carrying rocks underwater and doing that whole thing where, you know, like epoxy training, you know, and got to a point where it's like I'm doing all this work in order to develop my lungs. Why would I destruct that? And literally it was like, one day, you know, of ah, that just seems stupid. Why would so I? So you that? did the life process program. It's sort of like there's a scale, and on the scale is the addiction on one end, and then on the other weight, the other platform is why I don't want this addiction. Right. And then you start throwing rocks on the part where you don't want the addiction. Well, I'm trying to get healthy. I'm running. You know, I want to surf. You know, and the more things you get on that, finally that scale weighs more on that side right. than whatever the addiction is giving you. Right. And then magically, all of a sudden, you say, you know, I'm going to quit this addiction. And virtually every addiction is quit that way. I always use the same example of my Uncle Ozzy. And that whole process remarkably can take place in your mind. Sure. Yeah. Um, the example I always use my Uncle Ozzy who, uh, when my grandfather died, 
I came back to Philadelphia from Michigan. Remember, where I was hanging out in the animal laboratories right. with those monkeys. And uh, I saw my Uncle Ozzy outside of the synagogue, and I go, Hey, Ozzy, didn't you used to smoke? And he said, Well, I smoked from the time I was 18 until a couple of years ago, 25 years, four packs a day, unfiltered cigarettes. And I said, Wow. You know, and I had just seen those damn monkeys, and I said, why did you quit? And my Uncle Ozzy said, well, one day I was, we were having lunch at a bar. My, my Uncle Ozzy didn't have a drinking problem. They just had cheap food at the bar. And they had raised the price of cigarettes in Philadelphia from 30 to 35 cents. And Oscar put in 35 cents, and his coworker said, look at Ozzy. He's a sucker for the tobacco companies. And Ozzy said, 25 years, four packs of unfiltered cigarettes a day. You're right, I'm going to quit smoking. Mm. When I tell this story at this point, I usually say, there's something I forgot to tell you about my Uncle Ozzy. He was a militant union guy. Every day when he went into work, it was him against General Electric. I might as well throw in. General Electric made him a millionaire because he just took all of those options, stock options, and he ended up retiring a millionaire. So... Like capitalism worked for him. <laughs> well done, Ozzy. But he was fighting every day against the company, and they always sent him to the worst sections of Philadelphia to fix televisions as punishment. So my uncle was in the trenches. Right. And what, that, what did that woman do? She said to Ozzy, you know, everything you live for, your whole life meaning, being not a capitalist stooge, standing up to the company... Smoking is the opposite of that. Right. And it was like smacking him in the head. And when that idea hit him, he had to quit smoking. Right. So you were actually doing something, and it, was and it was conflicting with your smoking. My Uncle Ozzy got his head rearranged. Right. And he saw that he couldn't smoke and live as the human being that he was. And that process, that mindfulness process... One term for it is called motivational interviewing, where you to say to people, you know, let's reflect on your addiction. Let's reflect on what's important to you in life. Let's think about the relationship between those two things. Let's just, I'm not here to criticize you. I'm only here to talk to you about what you care about in life. Right. Let's just reflect on that. Well, and then let's think about your addiction there. Something you mentioned is, you know, educating people about how to use drugs. Drugs are going to be here. And it's been, drugs have been a part of our humanity since we have history, you know, and I'm sure prehistory, you know. So it's like the most important thing is that we have a strong foundation education around it. Then all of a sudden it loses its luster. It loses its sexiness. You know, we're not taught you know, how to smoke marijuana, how to drink. You know, you're taught how to drink alcohol from your other 14-year-old friend that broke into your parents' liquor cabinet, you know, and then you guys get totally shit-faced, you know, and you're, you know, whatever, breaking windows, whatever you're doing. That's how we learn to drink alcohol in our culture. You know, we try to illegalize acid. How can you possibly make something like LSD here's a, here's illegal? facts. There's only one Western country in the world that makes it illegal to drink alcohol until you're 21. What country is that? It's the United States. What 
the F or all those other crazy countries thinking. Right. Like Spain. You know, in Spain, they claim the drinking age is 16, but they don't really have a drinking age. Right. Uh, I went, you know, I went to uh, Spain or Portugal with my daughter. You know, they just bring out wine. You know, my daughter was, you know, under 18 at the time, and she was kind of young looking. And their concept is we're going to drink in a social context with other human beings as a part of a meal. And, you know, my daughter will be the first to tell you when she went to NYU, when people went out drinking all weekend, she said, I just, I didn't get it. You know, it just didn't make any kind of sense to me. Can we, I guess... Some of the questions we have to expand our minds around are how, how do you teach a young person? We're giving young people powerful drugs. Right. You know, Ritalin is not something you mess around with. It's an, it's an amphetamine with a remarkably similar const, uh, chemical structure to methamphetamine. Right. We throw all kinds of things into our bodies from earlier and earlier ages. And so let's just use... You know, as we wind down our conversation, let's use the lessons that we learned from you, Aaron Alexander, about what is it that you want your kid to know or do or be so that if somehow he gets a painkiller in the hospital, so that if he smokes marijuana with his friends, so that of course he's going to be exposed to video games, his whole life won't be consumed by them. Well, you want him to have some positive things that he wants to do. You know, I mean, you went surfing, you know, maybe he'll be an athlete, you know, maybe, or she, play soccer or play football. Uh, Maybe there'll be something they really care about using their mind for. You know, maybe they want to be an actor, maybe they want to read. Um, They have to have values that counterpose just giving yourself over to an addiction. What's a value against that? They have to value themselves. They have to value their minds. They have to, what part of what you were talking about was you valued your health. You know, you start saying, you know what, here I am working on my body and I'm sort of polluting my body at the same time. That just doesn't all way out, add up. You, you have to have values towards larger goals. I mean, you know, I, one of my jokes is what's the cure for smoking addiction? And the answer is communism, given my uncle Ozzy. But of course, that was what he was into or whatever. We, I'm not going to, my uncle Ozzy's dead now. Uh, By the way, uh, at his 90th birthday party, I would always ask my Uncle Ozzy, tell me about when you quit smoking. You know, I'm a boring guy. You know, I'm focused on a couple things. When he was 90 at his 90th birthday party at his son's house in Manhattan Beach, he said to me, just what you said to me, but you got there quicker. He said, did I used to smoke? You know. Because he quit when he was 42, so he'd already been not smoking for the rest of his life. But my uncle valued something. He wanted, you know, he he had a goal of, you know, making it good for the working man. If you imbue your child with these other, you put it really perfectly. The question isn't why you become addicted. The question is why you resist becoming addicted. What is it that you have in your life? that you like more, that you care about more, that you want to pursue, that's more important to you, that you don't want to disappoint. And that's the correct question to ask because, as you point out, we're not 
being exposed to fewer drugs, I don't care how many truckloads of heroin they prevent coming up from Mexico or whatever the hell they're doing, everywhere around us there's more drugs and more easily accessible drugs. We're giving people drugs all the time. The, The question is, what is it you have instead in your life that's going to prevent you from becoming addicted? Right. You know, ask the question of not not why the addiction, but, you know, what is the initial stimulus? What's the pain? What's the void that you're filling up with? You know, and, and that's what I, I mean. Food is a really good, and we'll wrap up here really quick. But, you know, food is a really good example where it's like, you know, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling bored, if you're feeling you know lonely, whatever it may be, when you are able to have that mastication process, chomp, 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 or you're shooting up, or you're you know whatever you're doing, your mind gets distracted from your insecurity with yourself, you know. And so we need to stop looking at this symptom approach, you know, and stop you know just whacking out all the symptoms and thinking like, cool, fingers crossed, that should do it. It's not going to do it, you know. If you have pneumonia and you take a cough drop that doesn't impact the pneumonia <laughs> you know, like we gotta go so what we're I mean what, uh, a statistic that we hear all the time now which thank God isn't true of my children we're dealing with the first generation of Americans who are not as healthy and not going to live as long as their parents children are you know obesity is a major problem and it it's a pro- and it hits children at earlier and earlier ages We've gone through all of this civilization to get to a point where we're producing people who are less capable than the people who came before them of dealing with their most basic physical needs and desires and urges. We're not headed in a really positive direction. Right. And the answers to those problems are pretty complicated, you know, putting down video games, going outside and playing. But the answer is not to convince people that these external forces are going to control them, right. that addiction is a chronic brain disease, that if you take a drug and you like it, that you're over, going to be overwhelmed by it, that's not going to be the solution for addiction in the 21st century. Right. And I just want to say one more thing before wrapping up is, you know, like we were getting at before, of like letting these issues breathe by talking about them, bringing them to the table, institutionalizing them. You know, if, we, if all of a sudden you're able to get quality heroin you're able to get quality crack whatever and you're able to actually see a professional that you know that you're in a controlled environment you're not going to have people dying in the streets it's just say okay do you if you genuinely want this here's all the information about it this is gonna be a safe environment to figure this out you know if you don't want some piece of food while you're eating dinner and you just stash it underneath you know in like the closet or something like that that food will start to fester you know it didn't disappear you know, it's still there. You just don't see it. Eventually, it will start to stink. You know, and I think well, if we can do that, that. Most parents are unaware of is how accessible drugs are to their children. That's a single piece of information parents don't want to know about. Right. That in some degree, many of their children are already dealing with these kinds of issues. And it's on the one hand, you know, they need to, they're knowing about them maybe better than we do. Right. But on the other hand, knowing about their principles of life that are going to enable them not to be addicted, to have an open discussion of what it is to be addicted and what not to be, how not to be addicted. Yeah, education. You know, so thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, how do people find more information about you and your website or books or where do people go? Well, my website is www.peel.net. My latest book in 2014 that I wrote with Elsa Thompson out there in Oregon is Recover, Stop Thinking Like an Addict. 
And I have a light process program online, which is a translation of my rehab program, uh, you know, computerized to reach you at home. And we have counselors who can give you feedback on your answers as a way of running through the mindfulness things that we're talking about to understand yourself, to understand your addiction, to understand what your options are in life as a way of getting beyond addiction. Awesome. I love it, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for educating us, you know, and again, like I think the main thing with all of this is education. You know, if we, if we have well, a good sense of what's happening. Life energy, Aaron. You're, you're a man who conveys life energy, Thanks. Um, a positive impulse to life. You know, I, I'm 69 years old and I'm still out here, you know, I'm not surfing as much as you. <laughs> Can you surf out there in Oregon or is that done? Yeah. Or, no, Oregon has good surf actually. So, it's uh, cold. I mean, your life energy is inspiring, and uh, we all have that within us. We just have to find our special mix. Awesome. So good talking with you, Aaron. Thanks for hanging in there and, uh, to reach me here. And I'm in Brooklyn. You're in Oregon. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on. Bye-bye. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work, how, work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist and a massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.